don't know how much value I have in this universe, but I do know that I made a few people happier than they would have been without me. And as long as I know that, I'm as rich as I ever need to be. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. Poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Death is not the enemy, gentlemen. If we're going to fight a disease, let's fight one of the most terrible diseases of all, indifference. I do. I, I do voices. People call these things imperfections, but they're not. Oh, that's the good stuff. And then we get to choose who we let into our weird little worlds. Jeannie, I'm... I'm gonna miss you. <laughs> Me too, Al. No matter what anybody says, you'll always be a prince to me. Hello and welcome to this month's For Real Movie Club. August 11th, we saw the tragic passing of a comedic legend, Robin Williams. So as the earth mourned a little bit, heaven got a little bit funnier. And tonight for Four Wheel Movie Club, we will be covering four of the iconic films that Robin Williams starred in. And joining me tonight on the panel is Fanboys Anonymous owner, CEO, the man, Anthony Mango. Hey, hey, everybody. What's going on? Uh, we'll be joined later by hopefully other panelists here on the Four Wheel Movie Club. I know the time difference and it's Labor Day week, and I can understand why there's not too many people rushing. And it's also a very sensitive topic because it was, in fact, Robin Williams, who is a man that was very much so a part of our life. So before we get started, I'd like to share a few moments with you about why I feel Robin Williams was never be – he was one of a kind. When it comes to Robin Williams, he has always been there significantly through our childhood and through our adulthood. And you'll see by the movies we cover now – from 1989 with the Dead Poets Society all the way up to 1997 uh, with Goodwill Hunting, there's so much variety of what he did in between because Hook and Mrs. Doubtfire fell between those two. So, Tony, what's your favorite moment of Robin Williams? You know, I think it's hard to pinpoint the best Robin Williams moment because he's kind of all over the place all the time. And, you know, you can get a great moment one after another and then lose track of one that he did five minutes ago. Um, Something that's really odd with Robin Williams and something that uh, I didn't even realize until I started rewatching these movies in preparation for this podcast was just his presence in general. I'm watching these uh, movies and I'm forgetting the fact that he's now passed away. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, what's the next movie that he's going to be doing? And that happened actually almost in every single one of these movies that we were we were watching. There's just something about him where he had this overwhelming presence, and it was in everything that he did, where he could steal the spotlight, and it wouldn't be in a way where he was demanding the attention. It was just that people gravitated towards him. And that's my overall take uh, away from Robin Williams isn't any particular moment. It's just his ability to control every moment. Uh, joining us now on the Four Real Movie Club is Eddie Sequeira. Did I say it right? Yeah. Am I? Oh man, am I late? No, no, it's cool. Uh, we just get started right now. What we're doing is we're sharing our favorite Robin Williams movement before we jump into the actual movies. Okay. Cool. Uh, so we'll 
it's up to you now. Uh, Tony just went, so we're going to head and uh, what was your favorite Robin Williams moment overall? You know, I can't really pick one, uh, but if I have to off the top of my head, it's like uh, I really, really dug something about Bicentennial Man, mm-hmm. yeah, which is weird because, you know, it's not a comedic role per se, even though he makes a few jokes here and there. But uh, there was something about uh, the he brought credibility to the notion of, you know, what is allowed to be considered life and what is not. You know, he, you know, he you know he plays an android that fights to be recognized as a uh, an actual human being, and throughout the whole movie, you're just wondering, like, like you know, his performance goes from being robotic to organic, and I think that whole piece of film just shows just how much Robin Williams could do uh, dramatically, even though it was considered a family movie and all that. It was somewhat uh, at times criticized. Um, there was something almost too real about his his performance like he really believed in it you know it's it's it, he he was almost a method actor in a way which is which was not not even really his style mm-hmm. so that performance really stood out for me for sure uh, and like you said what you'll see throughout the four real movie club tonight is the ranges that Robin Williams has done sparking our childhood memories into going to great oscar nominated and oscar winning roles for the work that he had done throughout his uh, life and time. So the first movie that we will jump into here on the Four Real Movie Club is The Dead Poet Society, one of the most integral movies that I think if you've gone through any kind of literary class in high school, you've seen it. Um, Dead Poet Society is a 1989 American drama film directed by Peter Weir and starring Robin Williams. Set as the conservative and aristocratic Welton Academy, in the Northeast United States in 1959, it tells the story of an English teacher who inspires his students through his teaching of poetry. The film was critically acclaimed and was nominated for numerous awards. So to give you some facts before we jump into the movie and start discussing it, uh, Robin Williams was uh, nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. It won Best Original Screenplay for the Academy Awards. Uh, Peter Weir was also direct, uh, was nominated for Best Director, and it was also nominated for Best Picture. Um, it won the Best Foreign Films in the Caesar Awards, uh, as well as the David D. Tonatello Awards in Italy. And it was nominated for Outstanding Directorial Achievements in Motion Pictures in the Directors Guild of America. Uh, and it was nominated for multiple awards in the Golden Globes, as well as the Writers Guild of America. Um, again, this is a film that was set in 1959, and it, it's following a, an academy where... Robin Williams said as the teacher, and one of the most infamous lines from this is, Oh, Captain, my captain, from uh, the reference to the Walt Whitman poem. And it's been used several times throughout uh, different, you know, cartoons, movies, such like that. I was watching the Avengers cartoon today, and Hawkeye used the Oh, Captain, my captain when referring to Cap uh, during a battle. So one thing we want to talk about first when it comes to the Dead Poet Society, and I'll start with you, Tony, what kind of impact... uh, does this movie have on a culture? Well, it's, um, I don't want to start this off in a bad way, but it had both a positive and a negative, and I, I kind of would lean more towards a negative one. Um, after this movie, the phrase carpe diem became super popular, and people ran with it in the wrong way. Um, there are a million different people out there that fall into this, um, this, it's, I don't want to say a rut, but this kind of peer pressure, uh, mentality where 
there's an idea that's interesting and it's above what they can really produce on their own. So they latch onto it and they kind of manipulate it in a way that fits their own ideas. And this movie promotes the idea of carpe diem, seize the day, stand out, do what makes you feel good, be original and, and whatever. And a lot of people that had seen this movie or had just heard the phrase because other people had seen it took carpe diem to mean make a bunch of mistakes and be an idiot and take a bunch of risks and do stupid stuff and it'll all be okay. And it's not the intention of the movie to do that at all. And it's certainly not, you know, uh, inspired by Robin Williams's performance or anything, but this movie had a big impact on pop culture from that phrase alone. And Unfortunately, a lot of people just are stupid and they took it the wrong direction because this could have had a better impact and it could have been something that really gets the shy kid to break out of his shell or the kid who is in a shitty household with his parents to be able to fight back. And there are people that take the opportunity after watching this movie and they learn from it and they take it in the right direction. But there's also far too many people that just have another catchphrase that they can throw out there. And that's a shame. Eddie, what were your feelings on the cultural impact of this movie uh, to society in general? Well, this is uh, this is kind of weird because, uh, let me tell you something, when this movie first came out, I was uh, six years old, right? And my parents kept going on and on about this movie. Oh, Dead Poets Society. Oh, what a great movie. Whenever um, they were with other you know, friends of theirs, uh, they'd be discussing the movie, and all I'd hear was like, blah, 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 Dead Poets Society, blah, 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 rabble, 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 Dead Poets Society. So it's, you know, for, for many years, for like 10 years, it stuck in my mind. Like, oh, man, this, this is one of those serious movies, you know, one of those like, um, how should I put this? Those, those movies that have a certain finesse to it that bring um, that sometimes Hollywood just you know once or twice a year there's a there's a, a fantastic movie or at least they used to be uh, that came out of Hollywood that was just a, a very adult you know it's very mm-hmm. philosophical very uh, and because of the academic nature of the movie taking take place in the you know Ivy League prep school. Uh, everything seemed very uh, mythical about it. Um, so when I finally watched it about 10 years ago, I was like, wow, this is a great movie. Because you know, I was very philosophical back then as well. You know, when you're, you know, you're in your late teens, start thinking about life and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, like uh, that movie really, you know, if it, it had that impact on me. Mm-hmm. But I realized that all I saw was uh, the Carpe Diem thing. Yeah, you know, and I was like, oh, I get it now. Now I know why people say carpe diem once in a while. <laughs> like, it made sense. And I was like, yeah, but they're not really grasping the concept of you know, like improve yourself and everything that's around you. You know, like question authority because you know everything things are meant to change and uh, things aren't meant to stay the same all the time. And that and that's what the, you saw in the system. That's what you saw in that school. You saw that in um, uh, what was the name of the school? Wel- Welton. Yeah, they call it Helton in the movie. Mm-hmm. It was a joke. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's what they saw in that in that school. They saw this an, an, antiquated, like um, um, just just uh, cobwebbed uh, old mentality. And then the carpe diem thing was like, let's take this and grow with it mm-hmm. and make it something else, something better, something fresher, something new. 
And, uh, you know, they were fighting against that. And in the end, they didn't necessarily change anything, um, which I thought was hilarious because in real life, you always see is YOLO, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you see. So, yeah, I, I go with Tony. The, the cultural impact was the carpe diem phrase. Yep. And I think, like like most great fine things in life, only a few people really understood the movie. For sure. And to stick on the point of the legacy for a little bit of this movie, uh, like you mentioned, it, uh, you were six years old when this first came out. Personally, I, I was one. I wasn't even old. Maybe not even one. Maybe a couple months old. I know Tony was young. And at least to me, I wasn't exposed until high school. And I didn't enter high school until 2003 and then onward. So being introduced way after, uh, almost a decade later after it. And like you had made a reference that uh, Carpe Diem Seize the Day was a huge thing when this movie first came out. And now it's, unfortunately, YOLO because of uh, (laughs) the new age terminology. Do you think, as like a learning tool for Dead Poet Society, and I'll point this question to you first, Tony, do you feel that this is a good tool to use within a especially since you're, you kind of have a teacher's background when it comes to it, for students to use, to view that this is key for helping them grow as uh, students? You know, I, I would. Um, there are those pitfalls of people taking it the wrong way, but that's going to be the individual. And that's kind of your responsibility as a teacher to direct them to make sure that they don't. And then if they still do, well, you know, every kid starts off being perfectly fine and then they're raised to become thieves and murderers and whatever like that so uh, you you sort of you can't take all the the negative credit for yourself but um i think if i were to become an english teacher like i had originally planned i probably would end up showing these uh students in mind this film because it's something that can speak directly to a lot of different kids in a way that you can't really accomplish by speaking directly to them. It means something when a teacher says something to you and tries to tell you different things of how to live your life, but it means another thing if you come to the conclusion yourself. And movies have a way of kind of bridging the gap between that. They tell you what you want to learn, but then you convince yourself that you've already learned it on your own. And watching a movie like this for somebody who is maybe about like 14 or so, they're right at that cusp of sort of becoming an adult, but really impressionable and not exactly knowing where they're going to go in life. If you show them a movie like this, they're going to run with it. And that might be that little kick that gets them to do the thing that they were too shy to do. Um, Bringing it to somebody in the film itself, uh, the character of Neil, I think is what his name is, um, Mm -hmm. he decides that he wants to be an actor. And Dace uh, knows this himself because he and I went to the same high school. Um, We were a part of the plays. And I actually originally didn't plan on ever doing that in high school. But Mm -hmm. something just kind of started bothering me a little bit, and I felt the need to get out there and join some more clubs and stuff. And... Uh, when we were doing our auditions, one of the first days that we were doing that, I almost went home and decided not to do it. And I just decided to go and uh, take the different hallway and I guess I'm walking there. And now I guess if, if I'm walking there, I guess I'm heading towards here. And it was just sort of like uh, my mind in self-propelled mode. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life. And 
seeing a movie like Dead Poet Society probably would have gotten me to make that jump a year or two beforehand, and I would have had four good years about that in high school instead of two. So I would definitely uh, show this to people for that kind of a purpose. Uh, Eddie, what do you think? Do you think this is a good tool to help uh, mold young minds and push them into a direction when, within the teaching systems? Um, that's extremely... Uh, it's extremely difficult to pinpoint exactly what is a good influence and what's, what's a negative influence, uh, regardless of film or actors, regardless of production, regardless of media. Could, you know, sometimes... A song will influence someone. Sometimes uh, a book will influence someone. Actually, books influence people more than movies, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that both society, I, I mean, if I look at, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old fart, but if I look at a younger generation, I mean, they're just on their iPhones all the time. I mean, their attention span is absolutely zero. I mean, uh, the average 14, 15-year-old kid, man, I should even say 17-year-old, why not, uh, will watch, the, you know, they'll start watching the first five, ten minutes, and then they'll just, like, you know, drop down a stair below the desk where his phone is, you know, so he's tweeting, twatting, whatever the hell he's doing. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and, you know, like 10 years ago, I'll see, yeah, this movie's mandatory, you know, just like any uh, thought-provoking uh, film should be. Uh-huh. But now it's hard to answer that question. Um, I, I feel yes, but maybe I think it's something that, you know, inevitably people will find on their own. Uh, because Robin Williams is such a huge name attached to the movie, it's not just something that you know, like it's it's gonna get it's gonna pass by. Um, even even the even more even people who are just into the you know, uh, for lack of a better term, dick and fart jokes, uh, you know, they're just gonna go to the, to the obvious slapstick comedy, uh, Robin Williams movies, which are tasteful, by the way. Uh-huh. But, you know, I mean, inevitably they're going to sift through some of his, you know, uh, more existential movies like Being Human, uh, you know, uh, Patch Adams and some such. It's it's a very, uh, it's very subjective to, to say that it would be positive or, or not. It might just, it might seem boring. I mean, I remember there were movies I used to watch in high school that was, I was like, oh my God, kill me now. I can't even remember what those movies were. Some stuff from the fifties uh, or sixties or something. I think I think we watched West Side Story for music class, and mm-hmm. I just it was boring as hell. I'm sure today I'd have a different opinion, but back then it was just like screw this. Yeah, I'll play, I want to play Mortal Kombat, you know. <laughs> uh, so it's hard. It's hard to say, you know. Like uh, as much as I want to say it's it's fail proof, and uh, you know, the, the system can be improved by just adding this and that. It, it's impossible to tell, you know. I think it's in small steps. We'll, you know, it's uh, we, we get to see what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. To give some facts to our uh, listeners out there, uh, the release date for this movie was June second, nineteen eighty nine. Its runtime is about one hundred and twenty eight minutes, um, and the budget was sixteen point four million dollars, and it brought in about two hundred thirty five million. So, what we like to talk about here on the Formula uh, Four Real Movie Club is also the casting and some of the roles and. Obviously, Robin Williams is the common theme throughout the night, and he was the lead role as John Keaton, the teacher. Uh, but two names that are attached to this project were really young at the time. And if you think about it, Rob Sean Leonard um, as Neil Perry, the, the one who ultimately committed suicide, spoiler alert, um, he ends up playing Dr. Wilson in Dr. House, in the TV show House. And then, of course, a young Ethan Hawke was Todd Anderson. Um, as always, we go around, we like to see, was the casting done well? Was it 
appropriate. And keep in mind that for at least Robin Williams at this moment in his career, uh, he only had about four things behind him work-wise when it came to filmography. Um, he was infamous, infamously known for his work on Mork and Mindy, a very comedic role. He went into Popeye in 1980, and then he had Good Morning Vietnam in 1987. So at 1989, in this moment of Robin's career, and I'll start with you again, Tony. Do you feel that Robin Williams was a good cast for the lead teacher and a, more or less a serious role compared to what he'd been doing in the past? Perfect for me. Um, a lot of times if you cast somebody who seems like they're the total opposite of what they, uh, what the part is, it ends up being better than if you would have just gone with somebody who would have been typecast as that. A lot of people complained about Heath, Le- uh, Heath Ledger, and I'm one of them. And he ended up being a great Joker. Uh, actually, a lot of people even complained about Robert Downey Jr. for Tony Stark. And, again, ended up being somebody who now people are saying nobody else can play the part. So, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Williams was in a weird spot because he hadn't really become as much of a megastar as he eventually would. And he was just known from a silly TV show. But there's something behind Robin Williams in almost all of his roles where I wouldn't necessarily say it's just like a likability factor, but it's this sort of tangible, um, I don't know, this, this genuine driving force behind pretty much everybody that he plays in every kind of possible role where you believe that he's that character. And it's not just cause he's a good actor. It's because he molds that a character to fit his own self. Uh, this is the type of movie where he doesn't have to be the bouncing around and going crazy type of uh, role. And he does that a couple of times here and there. It's a little bit peppered throughout. And oddly enough, that's when it feels weird. But you don't have to always be on. And a lot of comedians feel like they need to do this. And it's nice to see the other side when he can actually relax and he actually has his uh, sympathies come out and his more emotional side and his sensitivities come out. And that was something that you don't get to see in a lot of these other movies, but he clearly had behind him. And that's why he was able to pull this off so well. You believe that when he talks about paying attention to the beauty that is going on around you and the little things that matter and trying not to take things as seriously as you necessarily should that probably is what Robin Williams believed himself. So I think that he was perfect for this role. And if they would have cast somebody else, I doubt that this movie would have gotten anywhere near as much attention as it did. Eddie, your thoughts on Robin's casting at this point in his career? That's a bold move, definitely. Um, even though I found uh, Good Morning Vietnam to be more of a way more of a drama movie. Um, his his character was still very much comedic. You know, he made way too many jokes. Um, but uh, it was uh, it, I think it was the, it was the next logical step in his career. I mean, um, there I'm sure there was a, a lot of talk between agents and uh, movie studios uh, because it's not it's not only usually their personal decision. You know, there are a lot of factors involved. Uh, not not only the casting agency or whatnot. So I think I don't know. It's just it was it just it seems very natural. Uh, maybe it happened by accident, or maybe it was very thought out. Um, I don't think anybody involved with that project really, really 
new DevOps set, uh, perhaps a new standard, and uh, uh, as far as uh, movies about classrooms and literature go, but it just, I know, stars aligned. Um, I think the casting was excellent. Who knows if it was intentional or not? Uh, I don't know too much about the background itself. Um, otherwise, I'll just say that uh, it was it was still, I, I don't find Robin Williams' uh, performance to be necessarily uh, phenomenal or or anything, but he he brought a very simple character, you know, mm-hmm. very simple guy um, who knew who knew who knew his shit. He really knew his stuff. Uh, you know, just a few sentences, he just hooked the, uh, all all the kids' attention, and that was very important. He he brought that credibility, as simple as it was. So that that's what made the 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 performance really good. Uh, speak, uh, when it comes to the rest of the cast, for the most part, most of them are relatively uh, have minor successes here and there. Like I said before, Ethan Hawke is a big name that was in this, as well as Robert Sean Leonard, who played ne- Neil Perry and would go on to play uh, Wilson in House. Um, when it comes to watching this film, is there anybody, and I'll shoot this to you first, Eddie, that you would recast, didn't really fit the movie, and kind of killed the mode or vibe? Nope, not at all. I think everything was fine. Like I said, stars aligned. Uh, I think the movie became a standard, you know, something to look up to, uh, at least for filmography of the late 80s. And uh, what I like the most is that I don't know what it is. Maybe, you know, I romanticize about the past a little bit sometimes. Like, you know, for instance, when I look at my parents, I think, my God, when my dad was my age, he was already, you know, doing this and that, you know, and, you know, I'm just a kid next to him compared to him. Um, you know, sometimes I look at, I mean, the, I mean, the, uh, the actors were portraying kids in the 50s, 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 59. Th- there you go. I knew I was on the cusp. <laughs> but, uh, like, there's some sort of maturity about, you know, young men back then. I don't know what it is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're less about, again, here I come with the subject, dick and fart jokes. I mean, there, there was a, there was more to, there was, there was more of a seriousness in, uh, in everything they did back then. Sure, I see, you know, there are the pranks, there are the jocks that, you know, that, that punched a dude in the middle of the movie because uh, he kissed his girlfriend. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, no, the cast is great. I wouldn't touch a thing. I think Ethan Hawke did a great job. I think uh, the Leonard, Sean, what's his name? Robert Sean Leonard. Robert Sean Leonard, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's three names in one. It's hard to yeah. remember that. So, um, no, I mean, why why change anything? It was great. Tony, your thoughts on the casting? Anything that you would fix, or is it just as is is good? No, I think everybody did their job the way that they should. Uh, I don't know if maybe some of the people, you could have just replaced them with somebody else, and it would have made no difference. A lot of them, there's probably other people that could have played the parts, but... Uh, Looking back on this, I mean, you wouldn't need to change. It's not like there's anybody who comes up short. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other thing, I mean, this isn't a casting thing, but this is maybe just uh, who to hire um, that I would change would be whoever did the music. I don't know who uh, it necessarily was. I didn't catch that when I was paying attention to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the choice of the music in the movie is a little bit odd. And if they were going to replace anything, it wouldn't be any of the actors. I think that maybe a little change in music would help. But then again, it works too. I mean, uh, everybody sort of either does their job admirably or good enough. So, 
it comes out with a good movie in the end, and that's all you can really ask for. So I probably wouldn't change a thing. Probably not even the music. Now that I'm thinking about that. Well, no. Let me add something. Let me add something real quick. Um, okay. I agree. There's a part. I think the first time when the the guys go go to look for the cave. Uh, there's this really cheesy 80s synth kind of thing going on. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, this is the only thing that kept the movie from becoming this really great masterpiece because I, it just it, it drew me back into, you know, you know the, 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 the possible low budget, you know, where they have to cut costs somewhere. I'm sure Robin Williams is one of the higher uh, uh, fees of the movie. So... Um, I was like, man, really, synth, 80s, like, Casio, Roland, synth, whatever. <laughs> Come on, man. But the rest was, I mean, the rest of the, uh, the music was good, except for that one part. Maybe there's another, but that's it. Okay. So what we'll do is, before we move on to the next movie, what we want to do is our high points, low points of the movie. We'll start with you, Tony. What, what is your high point and low point of Dead Poet Society? Uh, hmm... Low point, I would probably say the music uh, for the reasons that we just touched upon. High point, it's either got to be Neil's story for how brutal it is. And um, something I want to mention real quick about that. I don't know if this was just implied or I took it the wrong way or whatever. Was he supposed to be gay as well? I always got that vibe. Mm, I didn't see it at all. But, I mean, it was an all-boys school. You can never really... The, sexuality was never truly touched upon, except for several moments, but anyways. Um, but I really liked that story, but if if I wouldn't give it to that, then it's got to be the um, Nuwanda character. Uh, specifically the one line in there, damn it, Neil, it's Nuwanda. And his... Uh, Veracity to be able to just stick to his guns and everything like that. I really love that. Oh, you know, actually, one other thing I want to mention. That was another highlight. And uh, probably my favorite line in the entire movie. Um, when he, when Nuanda, the character, ends up doing that whole fake phone call from God. And uh, Keating's character says, if it had been collect, it would have been daring. That was awesome. I love that. Eddie, what were your high points, low points, and final thoughts of uh, Dead Poets Society? Well, I'm a big, um, you know, anti-establishment kind of guy. Like, uh, you know, not, not not an anarchist or anything. I just, you know, far from that. I just, I really fucking hated school. I really did, you know. And then uh, I, I grew up with the whole, like, you know, the parents saying, uh, if you don't get good grades, you're going to die, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I got it. I mean, I, I understood. I mean, they weren't, like, serious about it. I mean, they, they, they cared for me, you know. They, uh, they wanted me to succeed and, you know, have a comfortable life. You know? They didn't want me to, you know, like, be a starving musician. Oh, man. Anyways. <laughs> uh, so, um, I really, yeah, Neil's story, uh, you know, when... Uh, I forgot his dad's name, Red Foreman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Robocop, Clarence from Robocop. What's his name? Pat, uh, Kirk, uh, Kirkwood Smith. There you go. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he's just a typical kind of like like old-fashioned dad that won't will, will take any craps, like eat your, you know, like do your homework, you know, pray to God, eat your vegetables and that kind of stuff. 
uh, and that's I don't know. It strikes a chord with me. Not I, I mean I didn't grow up like that, but just for some reason, like I, I really feel for the, those kind of kids that had like really brutal parents. Like oh you got I remember this one kid in my class. He got a B plus or something like that in some social studies uh, test back in fifth grade. Fifth grade, a fucking kid, and he just looked at me like, man, I'm grounded. I'm like. Well, what, what are you talking about? You're like a straight A student. This is like a this is a fluke. You usually get no no. He got like he got like a ninety eight percent. He got one question wrong, and he said no no. My parents my, my parents said if I didn't get a hundred percent, I was grounded. I was like, dude, that's fuck. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad I'm getting my D's and C's, you know. <laughs> Because if I was getting F's, I'd be grounded. But uh, the thing is, um, you know, every every one of those kids, has, one way or another, uh, they they're really trapped in the cage. A lot of times, uh, you think, oh, they have opportunities, they have this and that. Man, the human condition, you know, it just make it makes you want to fight against anything that's that seems wrong to you. So, you know, these guys, yeah, sure, to you, they look comfortable and they're rich and they can they all become doctors and lawyers, but so what? You know, um, there are a lot of different issues at hand, um, a lot of psychological pressure, you know, like what uh, I think, was it Ethan Hawke's character that was really, really shy? Yeah, yeah, it was him, because then uh, Keating makes him, like, do some freestyle poetry, on, like, on, standing up in class, mm-hmm. and... um so I was just I was just looking at these kids. I'm like, man, these guys, they have it rough, you know. It's like, it's like that, that's that, that's right. That's what I enjoyed. I enjoyed the fact that they transitioned from these, you know, uh, kids that were like buckling down to like like Neil. He he just said, no, screw this. I'm becoming an actor. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, that's that's really great. You know, they're taking these freedoms. I mean, we don't understand. I mean, you know, in, in the '90s. 2000s. I mean, we we literally can do whatever the hell we want. But back then, it's like, uh, like even the social class, like Paris Hilton, you know, she's a whore and she's great for it. <laughs> uh, but back then, you know, back in the 50s, she'd have to be this perfect madam, you know, like you know, tending to her husband and the kids and all that. And so, so everything was really in the mold. Uh-huh. And you really see it in the movie. I think they did a great job portraying that. As far as low point. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, man. Uh, I'm in some sort of rut, but I wish there was some sex. <laughs> just, just regular, like uh, I don't even need to see tits, you know. Just, just a little, like e- even missionary would have done it. I'm glad that's the, for this movie, and not like the next one, which is Hook. But <laughs> oh Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> I'm not that messed up, man. <laughs> uh, before we we finalize Dead Poet Society, uh, on a scale one to ten, Eddie, what would you rate the movie? Uh, hang on, let this crazy dude... Can you hear the car outside? A little bit. Yeah, yeah, this is Fast and the Furious 8 me shot right now or something. <laughs> um, uh, give it a, I'll give it an 8. Okay. I'll give, it a, I'll give it a good 8. I think I'm not giving it a 10 because at times I just felt like... Um, it, the movie could have been even more philosophical, I suppose. You know, sometimes uh, Keating is just there as a catalyst of sorts, and then he just disappears. A little more Keating would have been cool. Maybe a little, an extra ten minutes into the, a few extra scenes in the movie would have been great, and some sex. Um, then the music was j- j- just a little. I mean, that was like, oh man. So, but I'll give it an eight. It's a, it's a definitely a good movie. And Tony, what would your rating be, one to ten? 
I'll actually go a little bit lower and give it a seven. I think one more rewrite of the movie probably would have bumped it up to maybe an eight and a half, but they never did that rewrite. And it could have tightened up a couple things, made things run a little bit smoother, maybe add some more lines to different characters and maybe flesh out Ethan Hawke's character a little bit more. But um, it's a good movie. It's just not a movie that you can pop on whenever you're up for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, for those of you that are listening live, our next film we'll be going to is Hook. Uh, for those of you listening on our reestablished YouTube channel, woo! Yeah, about uh, time. Woo! Make sure you click on the next video as we go into Hook. Hook is a 1991 American fantasy adventure. So uh, it was directed by Steven Spielberg and written by James V. Hart and Malia Scotch Marmo. Uh, it stars Robin Williams as Peter, P- Peter Pan slash Peter Banning. Dustin Hoffman as Hook, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell, and somebody else who passed away this year, Bob Hoskins as Shmee. Um, obviously, it follows the life and times of uh, Peter Pan after he has left Neverland, and then Hook, still wanting that great and one final f- glorious battle, kidnaps Peter Pan's kids and draws Peter Pan back, giving us a story that we'll have to see Peter Banning return to the Peter Pan ways. Uh, when we go into this movie real quick, Tony, we'll start with you. What was your initial thoughts on Hook? Watching this as a kid is different from watching it now. And I never understood this as a kid, but watching it today, this is a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. This is Robin Williams in the only role of a superhero that he was ever actually in. I mean, he's played, like, heroic characters, and he's played, like comic booky type of characters and whatever but this is a legitimate superhero movie just without the budget of the crazy things that we have nowadays mm-hmm. you've got your showdown with your villain you've got your adaptation of a series that kids like and adults can appreciate you've got colorful costumes you've got action fight sequences you've got an origin story everything it's a superhero movie which is crazy to think about Eddie, what were your initial thoughts on Hook? Yeah, same as Tony. Uh, uh, oh, a little, um, just a little trivia here. Uh, this was the first movie I saw in English. Like, I was eight years old. I saw it in the movie theater, actually, in 1981. 91, if I said 81, sorry. Uh, and it was, um, it, yeah, I did not see the whole adult side to it. There was some, there was some, um, there were some themes here and there. Uh, they were very adult you know, at times. Uh, I didn't catch that when I was a kid at all. I was just, you know, oh, cool, pirates and swinging back and forth and skateboards and all that. Um, you know, then watching it as an adult, like, I think only Steven Spielberg could have pulled off something like this. Mm-hmm. Like, the way he, he, he directs, like, everything becomes, you know, it, yeah, it's a family movie, it's a kid's movie, but it's also very tasteful somehow. Just somehow, I don't know something about the camera angles at times, and then sometimes it's he, you know, he allows John, Will- yeah, John Williams, all the difference. Uh, and no, no, the casting was excellent. Casting was totally excellent. I mean, for for this, I mean, for this, I mean, it's just star-studded. I mean, even Gwyneth Paltrow was in it for crying out loud, and she was like what sixteen at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just no, nah, there's yeah. My impression was surprise, you know, oddly enough. It's better than I was that I remembered it to be. 
mm-hmm. because now I can appreciate films a lot more, of course. The reception overall for this movie has been positively, like, well. Um, and it should be noted that Spielberg, Williams, and Hoffman didn't take salaries for the film when they did this, uh, according to Wikipedia. Uh, their deal called for the trio to split 40% of TriStar Pictures' gross revenues, and they were to receive $20 million from the first $50 million in gross theatrical film rentals, with TriStar keeping the $70 million rentals before the three resumed receiving their percentages. Um, but like you said, it's it's kind of this was one of the first movies in my childhood as well, being released December eleventh, nineteen ninety one. This was really I, I wasn't in uh, school yet. I'm home, and this is the story of Peter Pan re envisioned by Steven Spielberg and uh, James E. Hart and Malia Marmo. Um, for the spin on Peter Pan, we'll start with you, Tony. What were your thoughts? Like it, it's definitely not conventional with the usual. Peter Pan we're used to from Disney. Uh, definitely not. Um, in some good ways and some bad ways. Um, one thing that I do like a lot better about this in comparison to a lot of other versions of Peter Pan is that it it's sort of... I don't want to really say that it, it takes itself more seriously, but it does in a lot of different ways. Like, Hook is obviously a horrible villain and in every incarnation he's the villain he's never heroic at all from what i know at the very least maybe there's some kind of uh reimagining like maleficent or something like that but in this one he flat out fucking kills rufio he just kills him and it's like any other incarnation not only would rufio not exist which is kind of a shame but he would be trying to do something weird you know try to make something fall on top of whoever that he's fighting and they jump out of the way or something like that this one he plays around a little bit and then it's just like bang there's a sword in your stomach you're dead kid mm-hmm. and i like that a lot uh you don't have to do that for everything and not everything needs to be adult a lot of stuff is better if it's actually targeted towards kids but you know there's different versions of different things that we might have liked when we were kids that can use an upgrade and a little bit more adult power rangers is something that we've been talking about we really want to see uh the ninja turtle stuff you know you can upgrade that and hook why not Mm -hmm. um eddie what are your thoughts on this retelling of a story that's been told several several times of peter pan Uh, i don't know how like i said before like steven spielberg he just made it work Again, I can't exactly see how maybe it was, it was the casting with John Williams and the proper shading and lighting. Uh, but for real, like there were times where I thought this is extremely silly. Like this really is like kids, like kids, kids movie. It's like uh, I think after I believe after um, it reached a point where first of all the set was really cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just I remember I remember looking at the set going like oh my god it's like everything's made of styrofoam like, <laughs> with fiberglass it's like oh man it's like it's really bad you know and they had better uh, approaches towards building sets it's just I guess they really cheaped out on that aspect mm-hmm. but uh, here let me let me uh, just point out one thing that I thought was really lame really retro. Uh, the part when the Lost Boys... Is that what they call them? Lost Boys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lost Boys are introduced. Uh, 
And, I mean, like, you see, it's so retro. I mean, you guys might not remember this, but in the early 90s, it was all about, like, playing basketball and being a bad kid with your skateboard and Bart Simpson <laughs> attitude and eating my shorts, man. I mean, like, you see these kids, like, yeah, like, they're being all hip and stuff so they can connect, you know, with the kids back then, you know, and they might as well have spray-painted cowabunga on the walls, on the trees and stuff, because it was really retro, and just, it, it just became super lame, like, you know, like, uh, skateboarders dunking a basket, like, it just, it just became super lame. It would have been better if they kept the original, I don't know, uh, I don't even know if Rufio actually exists in the original book, uh-huh. but does he? Uh, not in the one that I read, but, like, there's many uh, different incarnations, so I wouldn't yeah, no, I mean, the Lost Boys, I mean, they just seemed, like, kind of ridiculous at times. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like they're, they're way too modern, you know. I'm sure, like, uh, you know, they, they, they got modern with with time, you know, as time passed. You know what I mean? Uh, he met Wendy when, like, in the 1940s or 50s or something, and then as time went by, you know, time passed as well. So, I mean, they, went, they would, I mean, whatever, Tinkerbell or something would bring some items back and forth. But, I mean, to the point where they, like, have, have a skateboarding culture and mini ramps, like, <laughs> that's when the movie kind of, like, that's where I stopped paying attention for real. That's when I just said, ah, you know what? <laughs> uh, but I like the aspect um, of, uh, of a really evil hook. Like, you know, like, killing Rufio was actually quite a surprise. Uh-huh. Um, otherwise... Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't have uh, any particular insights regarding regarding the movie. Other than Steven Spielberg did the, the absolute best he could have, and yeah. I think it showed. If we look at this film when it comes to the timeline of uh, Robin Williams, some of his uh, top films that he's credited from Dead Poet Society was 1989. So we travel forward. He goes into Cadillac Man, which was a straight up comedy and was not too much. Wasn't the great? It was. It wasn't a box office hit. That hands down was not. Uh, from there, he goes into Awakenings with uh, Robert De Niro, which is a huge drama. It does very well, and then goes into uh, The Fisher King, which is a comedy slash drama type movie. And it, in essence, it did very well as well. But it, he stuck to the drama range. Now, in '91, he released The Fisher King and Hook, and Hook really was the beginning of what would be a bunch of kids' movies coming out going forward. He would go into Hook, and then right after that, he would come out with Toys, Aladdin, Fern Gully, and another movie on our thing uh, on our list, Mrs. Doubtfire. So, kicking off into another genre again, because if you look at Robin Williams in this film, he really plays two different ranges of emotions. He plays that serious role as the father that is clearly overworked and doing everything he can for his family, and then it also hurts his family, to that goofy Peter Pan that... Hook was trying to drag out of him. Tony, do you think for Robin, when it comes to casting, this was a perfect role for him? No. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think that there might have been other people that could have pulled off the role even better. Mm-hmm. Um, which would be a little bit weird, because then we wouldn't get Tootsie versus Mrs. Doubtfire. But, uh, <laughs> I think out of all the actors in this whole thing, I really actually like Julia Roberts in it, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of her most endearing and kind of heartbreaking uh, roles. Uh, but the best actor of the bunch is uh, Hoffman. He's mm-hmm. a complete chameleon. And Robin Williams is phoning it in a little bit in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. The best parts for him are when he's being the serious one in this. 
when he's mm-hmm. playing the more childlike Peter Pan, it serves the well okay. You know, it's not something to complain about that hurts the movie or anything. But, you know, I kind of think maybe there could have been somebody else that could have done the part maybe just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Eddie, what are your thoughts on Robin Williams' uh, portrayal of Peter Pan and the rest of the casting for Hook? Well, I thought he was fine. Um, you know, it's uh, it played out well between a, a more serious, even dramatic role and uh, then switching to Peter Pan, you know, trying to be all goofy, which is what Robin Williams does best, uh, did best. But um, I will agree with Tony in saying that, yeah, I, I like this more serious side better than that, uh, the, the goofy one. Otherwise, yeah, I thought Julie Roberts was awesome. Uh, for some reason, her role reminded me of a, like, a theater performance because it's over the top. You have to project your voice towards the audience. And the way she was describing things, uh, whenever she spoke, it was like she was really narrating something to kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, I, that immediately uh, struck a chord with me. I was like, wow, this, her performance is excellent. Um, it was kind of weird when she became all serious and, oh, Peter, I love you and all that stuff. And I was like, what? Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I I I love to have seen a, a you know more of a romantic thing and like that in Dead Poet Society, but that's just me. Um, uh, as far as Dustin Hoffman, what? No, you're good. Okay, no, as far as Dustin Hoffman, um, he was solid, solid. Yeah, the, it's a lot more. Yeah, there was. Uh, I don't want to say it's his best performance. But definitely his most unusual one. Mm-hmm. In a very again, like Julia Roberts, it's just very theatrical. It's very uh, like like he's on stage performing. The whole thing felt more like a play sometimes. And I think that was the the whole point of it. One thing that we did talk about uh, with Dead Poets Society that was kind of a low point was the soundtrack. Now, of course, Hook uh, having music by John Williams, he's a legend. He, anything with John Williams touches usually golden. What are your thoughts, Tony, on John Williams and the music that was in Hook itself? You know, I tried to pay attention to that specifically Mm -hmm. when I was watching this movie, and it ended up blending in well enough that I can't remember anything out of the themes. Mm -hmm. There was a theme in it that I, like, started to get, like, stuck in my head at the beginning of watching this movie, Mm -hmm. but by the end of it, it felt natural enough that it all... Uh, blended into the fiberglass scenery, I guess you could say. Um, so it's a typical situation where John Williams pulls something fantastic out, and even though it's not his most memorable one, it's mm-hmm. still more than fine for the movie. For sure. Eddie, what are your thoughts on John Williams' score for Hook? Yeah, he's a master. He knows when to step back, and he knows when to really, really make the soundtrack a big part of the movie. He stepped back on this one for sure. I mean, I only remember, I vaguely remember some theme um, in the end, and that's it. But otherwise, man, I mean, it's John Williams. Yeah. <laughs> um, once again, like we do with all our films, we're going to do our high, po- uh, high points and low points of the film. Tony, what was your high points, low points, and final thoughts on Hook? Hmm. Low point... Rufio dies, because I actually really like Rufio, and I would have liked to see some kind of like a spinoff, maybe. Um, actually, another little low point, that little girl, They there's a reason why they ignore her for the majority of the movie, because she sucks. But, 
<laughs> high point if I'm not going to give it to somebody like Rufio or Thudbutt, which is the name alone is fucking amazing. <laughs> it would have to be uh, the scene where Tinkerbell gets big because that's heartbreaking and it's probably my favorite thing I've ever seen Julia Roberts do. Eddie, what are your high points, low points, and final thoughts of Hook? Well, the high point is definitely um, the uh, the part where you know Peter's definitely he's trying he's actually trying really hard to remember to become Peter Pan again, and there's a part where he finally picks up his teddy bear and he remembers for some particular reason that seems like a very very uh, magical sequence where he he has the memory of Tinkerbell taking him and. Uh, I mean, he's 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 actually flying because he has his happy thoughts of his kids, and uh, it seemed like the proper. I think that that scene got the proper treatment. You know, it was very quiet, very laid back. You know, the music was very. Uh, it, it was definitely it was there, just it was sustaining the moment, and, and it was great. As far as low point, the, lo- the Lost Boys were just ridiculous. I thought it was. I thought they were really stupid. Um, sometimes they were too. I mean, there was not a. I mean, I know they're kids, right? But they didn't. They really didn't get a single good child actor. I mean, you could see that it was just like some just some rehearsed lines and uh, and I, I didn't really like Rufio all that much. I don't know. When I was a kid, I hated him because he was such a dick to Peter. Um, of course, now I thought he was this. But uh, then again, you know, he had a mohawk, a triple mohawk. I only had one. Uh, and it was green, not red. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, whole, the skateboarding was so pathetic that, I mean, the, the, I just lost it. I was like, no, screw this. I, I mean, I saw the rest of the movie. It's just I thought it was a really cheap, cheap, cheap kind of marketing scheme from back then. Uh, and also, I, don't, I, I didn't really get the whole, like, is the crocodile still alive? Like, did, it, did it swallow <laughs> Captain Hook? What the fuck happened? <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck happened? I, I don't know. No, that's it. I mean, apart from that, I thought Hook was actually surprisingly better than I was expecting it to be. You know, in my tender uh, pre-midlife age. <laughs> so, with that being said, uh, on a scale of one to ten, what would you rate Hook? Um. Well, I have to take into consideration this is deliberately a kid's movie. Uh, I'll give it a 7. Okay. And, Tony, what would you give Hook on a 1 to 10? Uh, crap. Um, I'm going to go a little bit lower again and give it a 6. Okay. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, was the film Hook, starring Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman, Julia Roberts, and Bob Hoskins, among many others. Uh, if you're listening to us here live on megapowersradio.com, we will be going into our next film, one of my favorites, Mrs. Doubtfire. And if you're listening on YouTube, our newly reestablished YouTube, woo! We, uh, we will go ahead and click the link and go on to the next one or just let the playlist keep going. And it's time for our next film. So our next film is Mrs. Doubtfire which jumps us ahead to 1993. And to put you in perspective of the Robin Williams filmography that's going on uh, between Hook and Mrs. Doubtfire, he went through, he voiced the genie in Aladdin, which is an all-time favorite, my hands-down favorite Disney character in Disney movie. Uh, He did voice work for Fern Gully, voice work for The Timekeeper, and was in Shakes the Clown in 1992. 
which I'm not too sure what that is. What? Yeah, exactly. Huh? <laughs> uh, but Mrs. Doubtfire was the next big one outside of uh, when it comes to acting. He did a lot of voice work between Hook and uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. And Mrs. Doubtfire follows the story of a man who is going through a brutal divorce with his wife, and it ultimately affects the kids. And in one of the most successful attempts, because I'm tired of Nutty Professor, tired of frickin' Medea's wedding or whatever Medea does, um, Robin Williams goes in disguise and becomes the nanny for the kids, which, of course, comedy shall ensue. Initial thoughts, we'll start with you on this one, Eddie, for Mrs. Doubtfire. Initial thoughts. Um, well, I, okay, again, I'm old, right? So I saw this back in the, you know, in 1983 or 90, early 94 uh, in the movie theater. And, uh, and what's weird is that my parents were getting divorced at the time. So, I, I, but it, I mean, I didn't experience it as a traumatic event in my life. Just, you know, like, okay, it happened, big deal. I, re- I really was like, big deal, for real. But, like, I was watching it with my mom and my sister. And I just felt awkward as hell. Like, I wonder what my mom is thinking right now. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I saw it, right? And I liked it. I thought it was cool. You know, it was funny. Ha, a guy dressed, dressed up as an old lady, you know. It was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like 70% of the jokes I didn't get. But still, it was an entertainment movie. What you might not know is that it was kind of uh, unanimous among everyone in my class or everybody that I knew in my age group that that movie was a piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah, back then that movie was a piece of crap. And um, so in my mind, I was like, okay, that movie... I mean, I knew it was was a good movie. It's just, you know, I heard it... When you hear a lie so many times, it kind of becomes true. So I'm like, okay, that movie sucks, I guess. It's just a family movie. You know, if it doesn't have, like, cool superheroes or, you know, a lot of... Tits and fucking <laughs> the movie. The movie sucks. So you know, for a long, long time, that's just the way it seemed to me. Until I saw it last week. Surprisingly good. I was really, really surprised. Much more than Hook. Because uh, I mean, I remember the movie being all right, but it, it was actually really funny. Tony, what were your initial thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire? I own the movie. I love the movie. It's not mm. something that I watch every year or so, but if I'm in the mood to watch something from the 90s, and I frequently get into that mood where I just want to be nostalgic and I want to watch something that was lighthearted enough and something from my childhood that I can just sort of kick back and pretend like my life doesn't blow anymore, (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire and a bunch of other movies are those go-to ones. You know, if I'm not going to put in Grumpy Old Men or Rookie of the Year, or something like that, I'll put in a Mrs. Doubtfire. So it has a special place in my heart, for sure. Uh, To give you some of the the reception when it comes to this movie, at the box office, the film earned about $219 million in the U.S. and about $220 in all other countries for a worldwide total of over $440 million. It became the second highest grossing film of 93, only behind Jurassic Park. Um. It, when it comes to accolades and the listings in the AFI list, it was number 67 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs. And the song Dude Looks Like a Lady was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs. Um, in the 51st Golden Globe Awards, 
It won Best Picture for Musical Slash Comedy, and Robin Williams won Best Actor for Musical Slash Comedy. And in the 66th Academy Awards, it only won Best Makeup. Yay. <laughs> well, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, overall, the movie released November 24th, 1993. So again, putting it into like the pinnacle of our childhood, I, for me at least, I'm still not in school. Well, no, I was. I was just beginning kindergarten uh, around this time. Uh, so we're going to look into it. And one of the big things it speaks to is for those who have divorced parents. And the movie kicks off where it lets Robin Williams, uh, who is a voice actor living in San Francisco, he is devoted to his three children, and he kind of lets the party go a little bit too far despite the bad report card, which makes the split happen. Um, when it comes to speaking to divorced families, and at least this type of scenario is something that it was playing on in the early 90s with Mrs. Doubtfire. Do you think it resonates more with kids that go through that type of situation um, or not at all? So we'll start with you, Tony. Uh, well, my parents never divorced, although in retrospect they probably should have. And watching a movie like this as a kid, it didn't end up making me think that it you know that's something i had to come to the conclusion of when i had grown up and became mature enough to realize that some couples do not work out and that it is better if you split up um so it as a kid that had parents that hadn't gotten divorced it didn't bring those emotions out but it probably should have woken me up to the idea that it's not as bad as sometimes uh it's made out to be so I can't speak if it does talk to the kids with the divorced parents or not, but in my case, it, it didn't hit home at all. Eddie, your thoughts? Uh, my parents were smack in the middle, like fresh out of divorce, and my, you know, I already had a stepdad all the way, uh, who was a, just a little more successful than my dad. You know, had like a nicer car and whatever. So. So I totally, like, it totally struck a chord with me at the time. Um, but, the, I mean, the situation was nowhere near the same. I mean, it was, my parents were really amicable about it. Uh, whereas in the movie, it's like, wow, man, this bitch must die. Plus, your stepdad uh, was Timothy Dalton instead of Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> no, no, I don't even know who that is. Another James Bond. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, no, but uh, this, I guess uh, kind of like that, yeah. Um, so, uh, what was I? Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, it struck a chord with me, and I guess I, I was the only kid in my class that I knew was had divorced parents. Well, there was one other girl, but never mind. Uh, and, you know, the consensus was like, oh, this movie sucks and whatever, and I'm like, well, no shit, you have no life experience, and like, you know, like, when, when, sometimes I looked at myself, you know, not to, you know, act like I was better than anybody else, but, you know, me as a 10-year-old, like I, I always felt like this my whole life, but even though I was when I was a kid, like when I was a ten year old, like my age group always seemed incredibly immature compared to where I was. Not that I wasn't, you know, outgoing as hell and the class clown and made all sorts of jokes and didn't didn't take anything seriously, but inside, inside, I you know, I obviously I was gonna appreciate this movie way more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh when it comes to casting, again, we're looking at uh Robin Williams as the highlight for the four wheel movie club today. Um, again, he has gone from, we started with Dead Poets Society, he's transitioned into Hook, which was clearly geared at kids, 
back into a bunch of voice work, which was geared towards kids. And again, here in Mrs. Doubtfire, that is still more so a kids movie, but has enough comedy in there and none like hints and tones to it that speaks to an older audience or at least an older teenage audience when it comes to this movie. Do you think uh, at this point in Robin's career, and we'll start with you, Tony, this was a good move. And what did you feel about the rest of the uh, cast? Oh, man, that's that's tough because he did get typecast around this time. And I don't know if maybe that was the best move for him. It did lead to mass success, but maybe that's one of the reasons what led to him doing what he just did recently. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's tough to answer. Uh, for the rest of the cast, some of them didn't really do anything afterward. Uh, I don't know what happened with Lydia, um, the older daughter. Uh, the little kid, he sort of just floundered here and there. And the little, little girl, fucking annoying as hell. Um, <laughs> you know, she became this big icon kid star for a three-year period. And then now she's writing articles for Cracked and stuff um, and is a lot happier. Uh, Sally Field has stuck to her guns and she's been doing as good if not better ever since so mm-hmm. i don't know if this movie really didn't did her any favors or hurt her in any way or it just kind of was another thing another notch on the belt brosnan he ended up doing the bond films and then that's actually where his career took off even more but uh, i'm not sure i i think that if anything this is probably a good thing for everybody but you never quite know do you mm-hmm Eddie, what are your thoughts? Is it, was this a good move for Robin after doing so many kids' films and the rest of the cast? What are your thoughts on them? Uh, do you happen to have the, the the money this movie made right in front of you? The, grow, uh, the, the overall budget? Uh, the budget was $25 million and it box office brought in about a little over $440 million. $440? Yep, worldwide. Yeah, what do you think? I think it did well. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, I mean, this is how, I mean, this is how... Um, it's sad, but this is how Hollywood really works. Uh, if a movie does really, really, really well, who cares if it was a, you know, if it had integrity or artistic significance? Um, the movie was probably made in a, you know, in a cookie cutter. They said we want Robin Williams to star in the movie. Let's make a movie. Let's write something. Okay, good. He he's great with uh, doing this and that. And then you know they they say, oh no, the script was written a couple of years earlier. We were thinking about who to cast, but honestly, like it was just. They save these scripts for like for the perfect cash cow, and they totally got Robin Williams, uh, which is honestly I couldn't possibly see anybody else doing, especially back then. I mean, I could I could maybe see Jim Carrey pulling something like this off, but I don't know. Like Robin Williams built, even you know, his physical built is more is more uh, appropriate for this. Uh-huh. Um, like I don't think Jim Carrey's face could pull off a woman, <laughs> and again, you know, but Robin Williams totally did. Um, and I mean, yeah, it was great. I mean, his career and never, I mean, I mean, it never had a, it never took a step down ever since. Um, and I think it was still in a period where Robin Williams was, uh, he was genuine about his acting. He was genuine about his projects. Uh, before, I mean, cause I, I mean, uh, I saw a video on YouTube. Um, I forget who, who it was. It was like, it was like a 50 minute monologue about uh, how Robin Williams had to take a lot of jobs in the past uh, five, ten years to pay alimony. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, back then, he he was still fresh, and he was still doing all right. And I think he was sober, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was definitely the right one, yeah. 
When, when you come to talking uh, cash cows, one thing that was always in talks when it comes to Mrs. Doubtfire was a sequel. Um, writing of a sequel began for Mrs. Doubtfire 2 in 2001 by Bonnie Hunt, who also starred uh, alongside Robin Williams and Jumanji. Uh, Robin Williams was set to return in disguise as an old nanny, similar to the first movie, but due to the problems with the script, rewriting began in early 2006 as Robin was allegedly unhappy with the plot. Uh, the movie was expected to be released in late 2007, but following further script problems, the sequel was declared scrapped in mid-2006. Uh, the sequel storyline evolved Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire moving closer to his daughter's college so he could keep an eye on her in an interview for Newsday. Uh, Williams said the movie sequel was indefinitely scrapped, stating his reasons. Uh, he said the script just didn't work. Uh, in May 2013, though, there was hope for the sequel, as Chris Columbus stated that Robin Williams and I are talking about the sequel to Mrs. Doubtfire. We've talked about it, and the studio is interested. The thing that fascinates him was the sequel for Mrs. Doubtfire is most actors who create an iconic character like Mrs. Doubtfire. When you come back and do that character, well, you're 20 years older, so you're not looking to go the same way. Um, unfortunately, with the passing of Robin, the film was obviously scrapped. Because as of April uh, 17, 2014, the sequel was in development. Columbus and Williams were both expected to return. And Elf screenwriter David Berenbaum was writing the script. But due to his death, of course, it didn't pan out as planned. Tony, we'll start with you. Do you think a sequel would have been a good idea? No. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, there are certain movies that you can't make a sequel to. And certain movies that you can. And it can be either good or bad, depending on the script. There's no way that this could have had a good script to it. And what are you going to do? You're going to have him be the nanny to his grandkids and his kids don't recognize him? Or mm-hmm. he's going to be watching some other people's kids and that's legitimately creepy instead of uh, <laughs> him just watching his own kids? Like, There's no way around that that flaw. Uh, Eddie, what were your thoughts? A sequel would have been a good idea or a terrible idea? Uh... I suppose it's impossible to tell. Who knows? Something might have come out of it. Um, The plot would have been completely different, of course. I mean, um, I mean, if if we're really gonna push for it for a sequel, what could you possibly do that you couldn't just imitate the first one? You couldn't just say, oh no, he has to disguise himself because he can't be recognized or or something. You know, all you gotta do is find a real reason for it. I mean, I'm sure you could find a creative way. I mean, as long as you didn't, you know, get Michael Bay to direct it, it couldn't have been. It, w- it wouldn't be a complete catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Robin Williams can pull stuff off, right? For sure. Um, some of the in popular, like the popular culture references when it came to this movie, um, it's been referenced in several works going forward, kind of like Dead Poet Society, etc. Anything he does, it kind of it does resonate. And you see the ripple effect when it comes to the pond of filmography. Uh, Robin Williams, as the genie in the third uh, installment of Aladdin, actually spoofed a reprisal of his Mrs. Doubtfire role. Um, and he tries to give a dejected Jasmine some moral support. Uh, one of the most, probably one that resonates with a couple of us here on the, the panel, is in How I Met Your Mother, the episode The Playbook, Barney, played by Neil Patrick Harris, performs the role of Mrs. Doubtfire as Mrs. Stinsfire uh, as the pickup <laughs> oh, yeah. girls. Uh, another one that probably resonates with this panel is Tobias Funke in Arrested Development dresses as an elder nanny, Mrs. Featherbottom, um, and something described by the narrator, narrator as the exact plot of Mrs. Doubtfire. So it, it obviously the legacy of this movie 
it's a ripple effect when it comes to filmography and roles that we can look into as people like Eddie Murphy, Adam Sandler tried his hand in it, Tyler Perry lives off of it, tried to do these characters uh, in disguise, more or less. So when it comes to the legacy of this movie, Tony, what kind of impact do you think it has on the cinematic world? Why do so many people think that they could do this? <laughs> Every movie other than this that I've seen where somebody dresses up like a woman or whatever has been god-awful. And I'm sure the ones that I haven't seen have been even worse. There's no fucking way I'm watching a Medea movie. <laughs> and it's, it's a shame, too, because if you look at it, Eddie Murphy tried it twice. Uh, I think he had a... I think I would I'll give him fair credit. Nighty Professor, the first one, was okay. Yeah. Um, Afterwards, it was god awful. Um, One bit. Yeah, Eddie, what were you, what was your thoughts on the legacy of this film and how so many others have tried it afterwards? Uh, you know, it got to the point where um, I'd see a lot of actors, uh, you know, do these movies where, yeah, like Nutty Professor and whatever else. Like it, these movies are just passed by, and I wouldn't even notice. It's it's not. I mean, these were silly movies. You know, that's that's the thing. I mean, uh, it was it was uh, it was that whole uh, let's cash in on this uh, niche that's happening. You know, it's it's a it's a market. Oh, somebody dressed up funny. Ha ha. Let's watch it. You know, usually I mean, usually they're lukewarm family movies, and uh, that usually means it's not gonna do anything for me. So I mean, I, I guess I'm being cruel, but. Uh, I mean, if I think about it, they are like stuff like Big Mama. Like I think there was like, there were like two or three moments where I thought, "Aha, funny." Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was just kind of silly. So, um, trying really hard to defend the genre, <laughs> but I can't. It, it is definitely <laughs> tough to defend this. Guy. It's easy to bash it. I'm trying to defend it. Uh, but <laughs> the thing is, you know what? You know what it is. It's it, sometimes it, stars align. You know, Mr. Doubtfire worked. Other movies just couldn't get a decent. But maybe they, maybe the studios just didn't take the genre seriously. They didn't think you can actually do something tasteful with this kind of silly uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one note that I'd like to make before we continue our conversation that I was as I was reading through the articles of Mrs. Dalfire to think of stuff we could talk to. Uh, one thing we talk about when it comes to Robin Williams is his ability to dive into a character, and I think it's awesome to note that since the makeup for Mrs. Doubtfire's appearance took four hours to apply, um, Robin Williams has gone on record saying that he had recounted several occasions how he used to just walk through San Francisco, fully dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire, and once visit a sex shop to buy a large dildo. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) I just think things like that were just awesome that he would do that. Um, And I think it also plays to the fact that when it comes to comedians trying to play these other roles on screen, this is why Robin Williams could do so, as there are others probably nine to five put the makeup on, go and do it. Robin Williams was uh, five o'clock came and gone. He went to a sex store to buy a dildo. So, yeah, try that in <laughs> Texas, man. Yeah, <laughs> you get away with it in San Francisco. A nice little old lady yeah. comes in. Oh, I'm a nanny. It's okay. Let's buy a dildo. <laughs> um, but. Before we move on to our final movie, or well, one of our final movies, we want to do high points and low points for Mrs. Doubtfire. And we'll start with you, Tony. What was your high point, low point, and final thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire? My low point is the actual arguing throughout the movie because it's something 
that I'm not a big fan of watching, and I know that it's necessary for movies to do this and stuff. Obviously, I just study movie stuff constantly, but sometimes I'm just not in the mood to see conflict. And I actually, when I was rewatching this, I skipped forward the very beginning fight because I was like, I know that they split up, I know that they don't get back together at the end, which is actually good that it isn't just like all wrapped up in a neat little package, but. It's just unsettling sometimes, and if you're not in the mood to watch it, that's got to be a low point. Um, high point, I'm sure, for the women out there is Stu, because he's a fucking stud in the movie. <laughs> but <laughs> but for uh, myself, i got to give credit to one of the stupidest puns out there, but I love my puns, and that's my first day as a woman, and I'm already having hot flashes. That's fucking amazing. <laughs> That is amazing. Whoever wrote that line, if it was Robert Williams or one of the writers, fucking golf clap to you. Cause that was probably, probably Robin Williams. Probably. Uh, Eddie, what were your uh, high points, low points, and final thoughts on this is Doubtfire? Man, you know, like, uh, we, I mean, we have four uh, Bayes movies for this uh, panel. I mean, uh, two serious movies and two silly movies slash family movies. And I thought Mrs. Doubtfire was going to be a lot sillier than I remembered. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly enough, it was a, it was less of a roller coaster than Hook. Uh, it's hard to pick the hype, you know, like the one or two high points of the movie. I mean, uh, uh, I like I like the the way they portrayed this. Uh, Robin Williams played a, this uh, this. this Art, you know, this art, this artist with integrity that didn't want to do the the, uh, the smoking bird thing, and then uh, he just goes home and he, again, he just pulls out this dumb like, what the hell are you thinking? Uh, typical artist mind to just go with the flow and make, you know, and gets a petting zoo to, you know, to go over his house and I like that aspect and I like this uh, organic character and married to this very very serious who became over the years became very serious wife. And um, and then the whole divorce thing. Uh, that's again. I think it, it was portrayed realistically, except for the this. This is the low point for me. I mean, I don't believe in forgiveness from angry, angry women. No offense, really, no offense. I just I don't believe that. You know, in a total uh, touch of Christmas miracle, she you know at the end of the movie, after all the stuff that he's done, in the total invasion of her privacy as a, you know uh, uh, dressing up as a nanny and pulling all that off, there's no way she'd forgive him and let him see the kids. Uh-huh. That to me is just the movie lost cre- total cre- credibility. It became a family movie from then on for me. Um, as far as high point, honestly, I mean there are times where. Uh, like I saw how much, I mean, I, I liked how Robin Williams portrayed uh, a father who was really hurt and seeing this other jackass, you know, like be the dad in the family, like when they're at the pool. And then he, there's a part where like he throws a he throws an orange or something at him, and like, oh, I saw those children. Oh, that was just terrible. It was, a, uh, it was one of the uh, orderlies or one of the barmen like who threw the orange. Like it was just, I just laughed. <laughs> so hard at it. And all these small little things um, totally did it. And when he's at the restaurant and all that, it's like, man. No, a, lot, a lot of highs and just that one low where it lost credibility for me. Uh, before we wrap up, Mrs. Doubtfire, as usual, we're going to give our scale, thoughts on the scale 1 to 10. Eddie, we'll start you. 1 to 10, what would you give Mrs. Doubtfire? 
Um, I'll give it a six. A, a strong six. I'll go to like a, if I could, a six and a half. Uh, there, there are plenty of um, plenty of jokes. There are plenty of um, you know, puns and and all that. There are a lot of uh, uh, themes that I, as an adult now, can relate to compared to when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, I think this movie also, in a way, even though it's totally early '90s and um, an Ace of Base kind of, it's still very. I mean, I think I think it aged with uh, with grace. So, but it's just it's just in a at core, it's a silly movie. So yeah, there you go. It's a six, and that's it. Tony, what is your thoughts? One to ten. I'd give it a six and a half too. It serves its purpose perfectly well in being a family movie. Being something that you can laugh at and you can, I hate to use this phrase and kill me for doing it, a fun for the whole family type of movie. Uh, I'm going to go uh, fucking shoot myself for saying that because I hate that phrase so much. But it, it really yeah. does serve that purpose. It's something that I watched as a kid and my parents liked as a kid and my older sister liked Um not my parents liked as a kid. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, when I was probably the target age for this, or maybe even a little bit younger than that, um, it was a movie that I enjoyed, and we all were able to come to the idea that this was something that we could watch and we could sit and not annoy one of the members of the family by watching it. You know, if I wanted to watch Terminator, my sister didn't want to watch that. If my dad wanted to watch something from the 60s or whatever i didn't want to watch it so it targets that kind of an audience and it pulls it off sweet so for those of you that are listening we're going to move into our fourth movie uh goodwill hunting if you're watching on the newly re-established youtube channel uh go (laughs) go ahead and click the link and go down to the next one or let the video list keep playing uh and that ladies and gentlemen has mrs doubtfire now on to Goodwill Hunting. So we're jumping forward pretty far to 1997, so about four years. That's not really that far. Um, it's an American drama film directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Robin Williams, Matt Damon, Batfleck, Minnie Driver, and Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, written by Batfleck and Damon, uh, with Damon in the title role, the film follows 20-year-old South Boston laborer Will Hunting an unrecognized genius as part of a deferred prosecution agreement after assaulting a police officer becomes a patient of a therapist, Mr. Williams, and studies advanced mathematics with a renowned professor, Skarsgård. Through his therapy sessions, Will reevaluates his relationships with his best friend, Batfleck, uh, his girlfriend, Driver, and himself facing the significant task of thinking about his future. Um, Just to give you an idea where we stand currently, on the Robin Williams filmography timeline, after we have left Mrs. Doubtfire, he'd go on to film Jumanji in 1995, uh, do the third installment of Aladdin, The King of Thieves, in 96, a movie we'll be talking about in our archive session, Jack, in 96, The Birdcage, also in 96, and then we would go right into Goodwill Hunting, which was released in 97, with movies such as Flubber, Father's Day, and Deconstructing Harry. So, Goodwill Hunting. We'll start with you, uh, Tony, on this. What were your initial thoughts? This is not a movie that I ever would have expected that I liked, and thankfully, I just had decided a couple years ago to go ahead and watch it because 
man, these two, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they get shit upon by so many people for this movie, and I have no idea why. It's actually quite good for people that are predominantly actors more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, to keep this on a little bit on track with Robin Williams, uh, I had said before that I really like when he plays the serious role, and in this one, probably my favorite out of all of them. Uh, he is just a, a total gem. It's amazing. I don't know how he ended up agreeing to do this movie, how they took these two people that really had no credibility uh, credibility in Hollywood and were able to convince Skarsgård is one thing, not to downplay him, but mm-hmm. to get Skarsgård to do the movie, all right. To get Robin Williams to play a serious role when he's gotten used to doing these comedic roles, maybe that was it, maybe not, I don't know, but they are hugely indebted to Robin Williams for being a part of this movie because it, it, it sells the movie. Eddie, what were your initial thoughts on Good Will Hunting? Um, again, like Dead Poets Society, there was a lot of hype. Uh, when this came out in 97, uh, it was the talk of the town. Like Everybody was, well, all the parents were going, oh, this movie, oh, Good Will Hunting, this and that, and then won awards and all. And all. So, yeah, it was a little, uh, it's one of those movies. And I'm like, eventually I'll watch it someday, I guess, I suppose. And then I did. I think about 10 years ago or something, I saw it. And um, it was, again, I was in that phase where I wanted to discover life and death and all this philosophy and stuff. So, yeah, it struck a chord with me, but not as much as uh, last week when I saw it again. I mean... The production is fine. It's nothing over the top. I'm sure the budget was somewhat capped, but I, I don't think it shows at all. As far as the directing, it's great. Gus Van Sant is a great director. Uh, that, that's it's probably uh, not as uh, not as salient as it should be because Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were nobodies who wrote the script, and the script is excellent. And I love the whole Boston accent kind of thing, though. That I knew, I can't even pull it off. It's kind of weird. Like I, can't, I really can't fucking. I want to talk like that, but I can't. Like uh, <laughs> got shabby on my sweater. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's it's just fucking rad. Um, and uh, what really really uh, hit me in the gut was how much you know genius or not, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of good people that have a lot of capacity and potential that will sabotage themselves because of shitty psychology or shitty upbringing, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, well, I can't, let's talk about this some more, but let's go <laughs> on to the next question. <laughs> uh, let's give you some rundown facts for the listeners out there, some of the awards and accolades what, uh, that this movie had received. Uh, it was nominated uh, for nine categories at the 70th Academy Awards. It did win Best Supporting Actor for Robin Williams. Um, it also won Academy Award for Best Writing Original Screenplay for Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best uh, Matt Damon, Best Supporting Actress, Minnie Driver, uh, Best Song by Elliot Smith, uh, Miss Misery, as well as Original Score by Danny Elfman and Film Editing by Pietro Scalia. Uh, at the 55th Golden Globe Awards, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon again won uh, the Golden Globe for Best Screenplay. And Robin Williams was nominated for Supporting Actor, 
Matt Damon was nominated for Best Actor, and it was nominated for Best Motion Picture of a Drama. Um, and also, the it was nominated for several of the AFI lists, but never added to them. Um, more facts about the movie. It was released December 5th, 1997, with a runtime of 126 minutes. The budget was $10 million, and it grossed $225 million. So I'd say it, do, it did pretty well. Um, the critical response uh, has been overall okay. The individual moments, not the payoff that makes it so effective, according to Roger Ebert. Um, and Gary Brown says, despite its coarse exterior, Goodwill Hunting proves to be rather positive and a motivational experience. Now, as always, what we do with our films, we'll go and take a look at the casting. And we did go through the filmography line of Robin Williams, who was one of the supporting actors in this movie. Um, after leaving Mrs. Doubtfire, he went into a f- various range of roles where he was doing voice work again for Disney. He was in uh, another children's movie of Jumanji and then had other movies in between, such as Jack the Birdcage, that were kind of serious and funny at the same time. Um, Goodwill Hunting is definitely classified as a drama. And he's a supporting actor in this. So, Tony, we'll start with you. Do you feel that this was an excellent move for Robin to step in, an excellent role for Robin to step into? And what did you feel about the other cast, such as Batfleck and Matt Damon? Well, as much as he is probably the best part of this entire movie, I don't think that it really served him that much uh, purpose, in comparison especially to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. And maybe even Casey Affleck, too, because um, that sort of started to get Casey out out there. Um, but this was Matt Damon's movie. Um, Williams is the anchor, but this was his star vehicle for Damon to shoot up to the stars. And Ben Affleck to an extent, too. Um, they all do their parts extremely well. And Skarsgård and the other people do, too. I mean, there's not uh, to take away anything from those guys, but Williams didn't get as much out of this as he should have. Eddie, what was your thoughts on Robin Williams stepping into this role, as well as the other cast, such as Batfleck, Catfleck, uh, Skazgard, and Mini Driver? It's a weird name. You know, um, about the cast and the performances, um, it could be that the script was good enough, you know, the dialogues were good enough, that I didn't really care uh, about a particular performance. I thought Matt Damon was excellent. But otherwise, the rest was just pretty good. Or, you know, they did their job. And I think that's the intention. Not everything has to be over the top all the time. Sometimes you got to, you know, sometimes a movie is really like an, uh, an orchestra. You really got to know when to keep a certain section quiet and, and let it pop out only at certain times. And uh, Robin Williams is, is just, uh, he's really a, an antagonist. You know, he, he's, the, he's the catalyst for Matt Damon to... For his character of well, as long as, long as we know the name Goodwill for Good. Wait, what's his name? Will Hunting. Will, Will Hunting. Hunting. <laughs> yeah, I know his name was in the title. It's just <laughs> Goodwill. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, so obviously, uh, you know, um, Will Hunting goes through this whole uh, transformation. You know, he finally awakens. He stops lying to himself, saying, "Ah, I know that I know all this, but it's not really that big a deal." It is. And uh, who pulls that off? Robert Williams' character. You know, he really shows uh, Will Hunting the way. You know, just accept who he is and forgive himself or whoever else that he blames for, you know, his his life being the way it is. 
Um, as far as everybody else, they're there to let the pieces fall into place. I don't think there was a single below-average performance. Everybody was at least doing what they had to do. And uh, more credits to the uh, director than, uh, than the writers as well. I mean, as well as the writers. Uh, one interesting note to to touch upon here when it comes to this movie and the development of the production. Uh, ben Affleck and Matt Damon originally wrote the screenplay as a thriller about a young man in the rough-and-tumble streets of South Boston who possesses a superior intelligence and is targeted by the FBI to become a G-man. Uh, Castle Rock Entertainment president at the time, Robin, uh, Rob Reiner, later urged them to drop the thriller aspect of the story and to focus on the relationship between Will Hunting and his psychologist, Williams. Now, playing devil's advocate, Let's let's replay, keep the same roles and such like that, and we'll start uh, we'll start with you, uh, Eddie, this time. When it comes to the script and the way that the movie was is presented, and we all know it, do you think this would have worked as a thriller? Uh, it would have been a completely different movie. So basically, you're saying don't make this movie, make another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the movie is what it is because of the very specific nuances. In the story and the dialogue and the the way this uh, the events play out. So to say let's change this aspect and make that aspect a reality is to say change the whole the whole damn movie. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think it would have worked. Just to answer that okay. briefly. Uh, Tony, your thoughts? I kind of have to echo the same thing. If they were to make that movie, it might be a good movie. Um, but who's to say it wouldn't just be the board movies? Mm-hmm. That is Matt Damon. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon and Batfleck. <laughs> oh, Batfleck. Uh, when it comes to Robin Williams and his role here in Goodwill Hunting, it, it's a very serious role. And in fact, part of our intro was a clip pulled right out of it because he's playing a psychiatrist um, and doesn't really allow the gateway for too much goofy stuff that we we had just spent almost five or six years dealing with when it came to Robin Williams. Uh, as far as dramatic roles for Robin, Tony, we'll start with you. Do you think this was one of his best or no? If not his best, one of the best, definitely. Um, he is, I said before, he's the linchpin of this movie. He's the reason why the Matt Damon character doesn't become a douchebag. Because there's something about characters that are super smart and perfect at everything. And Damon's a good-looking guy, and he's... Uh, I'm not the biggest Mini Driver fan, but Mini Driver is presented in a way that she's supposed to be somebody who actually a lot of people are really into. I mean, there's a, an entire scene devoted to the idea that everybody wants to hit on her. Um, so it's like he gets the girl really easily. He's smart. He's got these uh, loyal friends that never really give him any trouble. And that would get annoying after a while if there wasn't somebody like Robin Williams in this film that was as good of an actor as he is to be able to pull him down and be the the guy above him. Uh-huh. So I think that if this was not his best serious role, then it's got to be up there. Eddie, uh, say a question. Do you feel that this was one of Robin's best uh, drama roles? And, you know, at the time, like I said, he's coming off of almost a six or seven year stint of comedy roles. Well, this is definitely, I think, the movie that finally got him on the track to doing mostly drama. If memory serves me right, didn't he do Awakening or Awakenings uh, right after this movie? Uh, I believe that was 
Or was that a little earlier? That was in 1990, where he played Dr. Malcolm Sawyer, uh, Sayer. Yeah. Yeah, it was Oh, oops. Okay, never mind. Uh, nevertheless, I know he did, uh, he did quite a few dramatic roles after that. The most significant ones to me were Patch Adams and Bicentennial Man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I want to say this is one of his best performances, per se, but he, he is solid, and the movie is solid because of it. You know, um, he, he really did what he had to do. Um, it's it's. I really think it's. Yeah, definitely. The movie is great, and he he was he was a part of something great. So I guess yeah, it's a it's a good performance. Okay, for Goodwill Hunting, we're about to we're going to wrap up and go into a fifth special edition film after this. But of course, like always, what were the high points, low points, and final thoughts of the film, Tony? All you. Man, low point, Mini Driver. Um, I said before that she's presented as somebody who everybody would want, but I actually think that she's pretentious as fuck during the movie. <laughs> and uh, whenever she's on screen, especially that one scene when she's crying, I just kind of like, ah, you can find somebody else better than this, Will. <laughs> um, best high point of this entire movie, it's not your fault. That scene. Oh, very nice. Um, Eddie? What was your high point, low point, and final thoughts of Goodwill Hunting? Yeah, I agree with Tony on the high point. I thought Matt Damon's performance was phenomenal in that last scene uh, because it becomes very claustrophobic. There's a certain claustrophobia when it comes to trying to figure out your psychology. Because sometimes, uh, as obvious as things are, you bury stuff deep inside, and then when you try to, when you try to bring it out, it's just it's kind of it just kind of chokes you for some reason, and uh, I thought Matt Damon's performance was absolutely his finest that I've ever seen. Although I haven't seen too many movies with him, but anyway, low point. Um, did we see tits? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I can't. I can't. I can't really. Find a low point, man. I like everything about the movie. Um, I like the fact that Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier were involved. Um, they have a small credit. I think they're like a assistant producers or something. Mm-hmm. Co-executive and, uh, producer, assistant managers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Ben Affleck, man, he, his best movies are always with Kevin Smith. Yeah. Like, I've seen a few, two or three other movies with him that are all right, where he's okay. Like Paycheck, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, sue me. Uh, but honestly, like I think Ben Affleck was born to work with Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. Like, well, even if Kevin Smith is like the like the catering guy, you know, like it's uh, I think it's it's the best thing he can do. Casey Affleck is great, um, and again, I, I love the I love the Boston accent. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> it's just um, uh, what else? And oh, I don't have a problem with Mini Driver. I thought. I, I'd tap that, man. Tony, would you tap that? I'd tap that. I wouldn't kick her out of bed, but um, there let, let me put put it this way. I liked the character that was completely pointless and didn't do a single thing out of the backseat of the Friends better than Mini Driver's there character. There's always one of those guys in every group. Come on. <laughs> For sure. There's always uh, a useless guy, but um, they're just, uh, I don't know, the, this, uh, this movie... Uh, something, something, it struck something personal with me. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying I'm a genius that's misunderstood or anything, but at times, again, it seems that sometimes we just, a lot of people just sabotage themselves, and 
I think that movie just kind of wakes you up a little more than Carpe Diem. For sure. Um, before we close out this segment on our fourth film, uh, Eddie, one to ten, what would you give Goodwill Hunting? Uh, I'll give it a nine. Honestly, uh, you know, I think it's underrated, and I can't we'll talk crap about it because obviously they're just being biased because they don't like Ben Affleck elsewhere or they don't like Matt Damon for whatever reason. So, yeah. Tony, one to ten? Mm, eight. Very nice. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, was Goodwill Hunting, and seeing as such, uh, Robin Williams was such an icon, for Real Movie Club will be doing a fifth movie, and it looks like we're going to get it in on air, which is, yay, awesome. So continue listening. We're going to go into the movie Jack. For those that are listening to our really our new reestablished YouTube channel, wow! For now, <laughs> until they take us down again. Yeah, we're no, talking no, 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 about Robin Williams. Um... Make sure you click the link to go on for our next film, which is Jack, or just let it keep playing through the playlist, because that's YouTube much more advanced than I am. On to the next one. So the next film we're going to be talking about is Jack, which is a uh, 1996 ensemble cast comedy drama, which I think is more so a drama than comedy, because that, that really made me cry. Um, it stars Robin Williams, Diane Lane, Jennifer Lopez, Fran Drescher, Bill Cosby, and Brian Kerwin. Uh, it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Williams plays the role of Jack Powell, a boy who ages four times as fast as a normal as a result of a disease, Werner Syndrome. Probably said that wrong. A form of progeria. Probably said that wrong. <laughs> so, going <laughs> in... You said it right. You said it right. Score. Uh, when looking at Jack, Tony, we'll start with you. What is your initial thoughts? All right. Jack is... Man... The things that they do well in this movie, they do so well. The things that they do wrong, they do so wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we talked a little bit before about the music in some of these movies. Uh, the music in this is terrible. And I really like Michael Kamen. Uh, his score for the Lethal Weapon films and License to Kill, amazing. In this one, it is so obnoxious. It's like, kind of shit. I can't stand it. Um, but the biggest thing out of this whole movie that they just nail and they hit it out of the park is the characterization of Jack himself. Robin Williams is so fucking good as a kid with this disease where, you know, by the midway point of this movie, you're not thinking of him as Robin Williams anymore. You're thinking of him as Jack being a 10 year old kid. And that's down to little details like, his L.A. light uh, sneakers being untied when he's walking and uh, when he trips and he falls and his uh, reaction to scraping his knee and all that. He must have done so much research for this, and it shows. He is just stellar in this fucking performance. And it's really a shame that it's in a shell of a movie where you can't really give it that much critical praise without it seeming a little odd. You know, the Academy Awards, they are very political in a lot of different ways. And I think that a role like this, it's something obscure enough that they would never feel comfortable doing it, but they should have at least paid more attention to him uh, for a best actor kind of a role. Because, man, if you were going to cast somebody as a 10-year-old kid, who better than Robin Williams? Eddie, what was your first thoughts of the movie Jack? Um, 
for some reason, it's not really a... It's, it's far from being one of my favorite Robin Williams movies. Uh, though his performance is great, uh, there's something very annoying and very logical to it that I really hate. Is that progeria is not a disease where you simply age faster. It, like, you literally... Uh, there's all sorts of all sorts of complications. Um, you might not grow as tall. Uh, you know your skin will be super wrinkled by the time you're eight, and things like that. It's it's a nasty. It's a visually. It's not a nice disease. And plus, if you I mean if you logically think about um, yeah this this is really annoying about me sometimes. Like if you logically think about um, the aging of the human brain. He wouldn't be such a kid anymore, you know. Like his brain would have developed fast enough that he'd have enough emotional control not to cry when he tripped, or uh, to tie his shoes and so forth. So that's the only thing that kept tapping me in my brain, you know, saying, "This is silly. This is heartbreaking, but silly." You know, so it's uh, that's that's. I have to get that out of the way. It's just it's not a it's. Uh, it's probably the, the low point already. Let me spoil that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's 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 the thing. Otherwise, it was a very entertaining entertaining movie. Otherwise, um, as always, when we talk about movies, and I, I like to say as always a lot because that's what I do. <laughs> um, the casting is something we like to talk about. Obviously, we're talking about Robin Williams because of his passing and the legacy he leaves behind. But I think it's also uh, we should note the fact that this is really one of Jennifer Lopez's first films. Uh, it may have been, I think it's like her fourth film overall, but one of the first ones that actually has some kind of mainstream, everybody kind of knows what this is. And it, in, also, it's Bill Cosby's, one of the last of his on-screen appearances that were not as himself. So Jack was really, he played the uh, the tutor who stayed at home with Jack and tried to teach him through school and introduced the idea of Jack going to public school. And uh, Jennifer Lopez played the teacher. Um when it comes to casting, Tony, we'll start with you. How did you feel about the casting when it came to the movie Jack? It's so awesome. There's only one negative, and that's the guy who plays his father, because he is pointless in this movie. He's got no characterization whatsoever, so any actor could have pulled that role off. But this is the only thing I've ever liked Jennifer Lopez in, and I don't even like her music either, and I think that she's overrated in every aspect. Her singing, her acting, her appearance, but she is such a great elementary school teacher in this. Um, Diane Lane, stunner. 10 out of 10. She's a complete fox. So bypassing the idea of her being a good mom in this, I couldn't get past her uh, her appearance because she's just one of the most attractive people in Hollywood, period. Um, Fran Drescher is a perfect turtle, total fucking harlot in this movie. These little kids are amazing. The little nerd that was in like every movie around this time period uh, is always fun to see. The little uh, one little kid that parrots what everybody else says, and the two little girls. I mean, they are all so good in this. Even the fucking little Casanova kid, uh, who I, I didn't even catch this when I had watched this movie years and years ago, but the, I never realized that this one little kid is got this thread growing at this whole movie of him being a total pervert. He's the one who predominantly out of everybody really wants to check out the penthouse magazine. He, uh, says when they are, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I want to be a gynecologist. <laughs> and she says, well, why? And he's like, you're the reason why Miss Marquez. 
<laughs> and I don't know if this kid was it was planned for him to say this line or if he fucking ad libbed it. And if he did, kudos to this actor for pulling it off. Uh, the scene where they are playing basketball, there's just this one quick line in the background where that little Casanova kid is what I, I'm referring to him. I think his character's name is George. Uh, he stands next to this other little girl and he goes, hey, you want to get a burger after school sometime? <laughs> <laughs> it's These little kids were just perfect for these roles and the outside of the uh, the father everybody else bill cosby and um even michael mckeon and whatever they all just did exactly what they were supposed to do but especially the kids were impressive in this uh eddie what were your thoughts on the casting for jack um everything was coherent you know i don't think anybody outshined anyone uh, even robin williams being the the focus uh, although I don't know, Jennifer Lopez is kind of silly. Even though she's very sweet, you know, you know, like a, a school teacher and all, a very relatively simple role, if you ask me. But I don't know. She doesn't really. She's not really like an actress, actress, you know. So I mean, I know she is. She's done some some movies that I, I I'm trying to force out were all respectable, but it's hard. No, otherwise, um, so, yeah. Okay. I have nothing to add about the cast. <laughs> uh, some facts about the movies are it was released uh, August 9, 1996, with a runtime of 113 minutes and a budget of $45 million. The box office, it grossed $58.5 million. So, overall, it, it debuted as number one, and it was moderately successful at the box office. Unfortunately for the film, it was uh, unfavorably compared to, with the 1988 film Big, in which Tom Hanks also played a child in a grown man's body. Uh, most critics felt that the screenplay was poorly written, not funny, and the dramatic material was unconvincing and unbelievable. Other critics felt that uh, Coppola was too talented to be making this type of film, and it holds a 17% on Rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So... With our final Robin Williams film here on the uh, the Four Real Movie Club, uh, the fifth special film, Tony, we'll start with you. What were the high points, low points, and final thoughts on Jack? Low point, that whole bar scene and the arrest, it's the weakest part of the movie, and everything really slows down, except for the fact that the cop tries to steal the pog slammer, which is actually pretty funny. Um, the high point, outside of just saying any scene where he is really playing up the the little kid thing. Uh, I like to point out the ones, the, the specific lines and stuff that I really like in it. Um, and one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is when he's trying to figure out what he wants to be when he grows up, and he just says he wants to be alive. That's a really, um, that tugs at the heartstrings, kind of. Ouch. Uh, Eddie, what were your high points, low points, and final thoughts on the movie Jack? Yeah, low points was the, the lack, I mean, complete lack of um, attention to the scientific facts of the disease uh you know that's it i'm gonna explain it in the beginning uh as far as high points uh yeah some of the some of the kids stuff that he does is hilarious like like when they're having like the fart contest right like like there's a part where he farts in a can or something and obviously his is gonna smell worse than the other kids 
Like, <laughs> this is the, I think it was the kid with the glasses. Like, he made this face, and I was just, like, gagging. <laughs> uh, that was hilarious. Um, otherwise, uh, there was something that, uh, I don't know, I guess me as a kid, I was always, like, this romantic where I had to pronounce my love to the girls in my class. And uh, usually I, it'll, it wouldn't work out very well. But uh, I, I, when, when, he, when he tried to tell his teacher that he loved her and wanted to be with her and stuff, I felt like, oh, man. Been there. Not that I ever wanted you know, a teacher of mine, but, you know. <laughs> I remember what it was like to be in grade school and want to, you know, like in elementary school, and want to, you know, um, do one of the girls. My <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if I had Jennifer Lopez as a teacher, yeah, totally. Reverse, reverse pedophile, what's that called? Awesome. <laughs> um, on a scale of 1 to 10 what would you give the movie Jack Eddie um, I'd give it a six. I'd give it a 6 it's entertaining and that's what counts I suppose it's not out to be the greatest movie ever mm-hmm. what's really weird is that Francis Ford Coppola directed it and I'm like why did he do this is it because Robin Williams is it because studio budget money what is it like, I, I, it didn't make sense Tony, one to ten. Five. This is actually the weakest out of all the movies, and it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just not a strong movie. You watch it to see Robin Williams act like a little kid. You don't watch it because you had just gotten done two thousand one A Space Odyssey, and you want to watch the next greatest film of all time, kind of a thing. <laughs> um, well, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us tonight in my panel here to discuss the works and life of Robin Williams and five of his films that have all eventually crossed our paths or touched us in some certain way, and not the inappropriate way. Um, so as our final thing that we do on every podcast here at Mega Powers Radio, let's go around and see what everybody's doing on the panel. Tony, we'll start with you. Okay, well, guys, as it's been mentioned multiple times, we now have our YouTube channel back up, and that might be where you're watching this uh, right now in the archive version. Who knows if that's going to stay? Uh, our previous channel, which was our second channel, got terminated the other day, and we're trying to sort that out. But if you are a fan of these podcasts and you want to make sure that in case this gets taken down a second time, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes and our Stitcher links. Those are not going to go down from Google being stupid. Um and you can always double-check to make sure that you have the right links and everything on fanboysanonymous.com. Pay attention to everything else, of course, that we're writing and everything else, uh, the other podcasts that are going on. Uh, for myself, if you're a fan of wrestling, go to smarkoutmoment.com. You can find a bunch of links to outside interference kind of stuff there. And uh, if you would like to subscribe to A Mango Tree and Tony Mango on Facebook and Twitter, those links are all over the place as well. So just look around and you will see my name plastered all over the internet in good ways and bad. Maybe not the Celebgate thing, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then break into the iCloud. Uh, (laughs) Eddie, what do you got going on, my man? Um, Yeah, it's Sunday and I woke up at 3, so I don't know, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 let's get serious. I'm working on sound effects and music for uh, Fanboys Anonymous. Um, so pretty soon you're going to be hearing some cool stuff in videos and uh, broadcasts and stuff um, assuming to, uh, Tony approves so then I have uh, I generally have a lot of stuff going on uh, musically but I'm trying to write a novel as well um, 
it's slow, slow. It's a slow process. Uh, sometimes I talk about it here. I mention this here. Sometimes I don't because it might take a few years. I don't know. But you can go to you can go to EddieCicara.com and all my Twitter feed is there as well as some of my portfolio. Cool. And for those of you, I'm your host Chris the Dace Man Dace. You can follow me on Twitter at the Dace Man. Check out everything that's going on at FanboysAndHonest.com. Check out the Dace Man Show Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern. We just did an interview with Galactose Pastries in Space the Game. We'll be having another interview coming up September 10th with C Mag Games. Um, and another one that we'll be announcing for October. So, woo, we're moving on to things there. Uh, check out oldtimewrestling.net. Shows pick back up next Saturday, 2 p.m. Yours truly with my tag team partner, Dre the Dragon Drummond. We'll be going for the tag team championships against Mean Streak. So, Wild and Crazy's coming for him, baby. Um, and check out things coming from Basement Protocol. We'll be launching our web series, hopefully, in the middle of September. So, we'll see when that debuts. Filming's underway. Hoping it'll be edited soon. So for the few, the proud, and the day-spectacular, and all you movie fans out there, uh, for the Four Real Movie Club, myself, Tony Mango, and Eddie Sakira. I do it right. Yep. Yeah, got it. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you, Robin Williams, for everything you've ever done for us, for all the movies, all the laughs, and all the tears. This has been the Four Real Movie Club. Keep on watching. At no point. In your rambling, incoherent response, were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? I'm too old for this. Good day, sir! You stay classy, San Diego. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'm finished. That'll help you. That'll go. Hasta la vista, baby. Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get late! You're still here? It's over. Go home.